So I get really fired up when I look at Psalm 1. And then I turn to Psalm 2. And the words are, why? Why do the heathen rage? And there's a part of me that almost wants to go, okay, so now I can skip over to the next psalm, and let's get to something that may be a little more comforting. And I think that was an unwise impulse on my part. So in our teen class, we've been taking some time to intentionally look at Scripture, to intentionally look at these psalms, and to take some time to meditate, to mull over what they say to think upon and focus on what is God saying through these words. The idea of meditate there has this um, picture of muttering or even like mumbling, like when, I'm, when you're talking to yourself and it's just to you and it's not really to somebody else, it's your conversation with yourself, you're processing something. That's kind of the idea of meditating. We're sharing words with ourselves. I'm thinking about something for me and I'm reciting it over and over again. And actually, it also has this idea of a groan. I thought, okay, well, what is meditate and groan? It almost sounds like meditation is a, is a pain. What? And for some people, you might go, yeah, well, of course it's a pain. No. Nah. The idea of a groan there, I think, being, where does a groan come from? And I asked the teens this. Like, when you groan, where does that come from? It comes from a deep place. And if I'm meditating on something, I am really moving myself to interact with that message in a deep place. I'm going to groan with this, and it's going to be an emotional movement also. It's going to be a movement where my body is aligning with this message, meditating. Um, So that's what we've been doing. So that caused me to take a look at Psalm 2 and say, do I skip this psalm with the teens, or do we look at this psalm? And it made me give it a longer look than maybe I had given it personally in my own reading. So we started into it last week, and I got some questions from the teams. We took some time, about 12 minutes, and just silently copied out some of the passage. And then after copying out some of the passage, we responded to the passage. So we wrote down different questions some of the teams did. And that's, I think, an act of meditation on God's word. So, from that, the teens also, I asked them, I said, should I preach on this next week or should I kind of go into a different passage? It's not to say that the Lord doesn't lead me into what to to do, but I wanted to hear from them, what are they they sensing there? What would they, um, really also, what's their interaction with Psalm 2? So some of them said, wait till we're all back in class and we'll have it in class. Some of them said, you should actually go ahead and preach on this today. I believe Khalidra was one of those and said, preach on it. So I said, okay. So here we are. We're going to follow those instructions, Khalidra. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But Lord, for it to be that, we must trust your word to be that. And I pray then that you would affirm our trust. The end of this psalm says, blessed are all they that put their trust in you. So, Lord, as we hear this word, as we ponder it, would you place our trust in you? Would you teach us to meditate on it? And in meditating on it this morning together, 
may there be a blessing for each and every one of us such that we leave different or we leave blessed. Lord, I pray that you would organize my, my thoughts and my words as I share. And Lord, just open up our hearts to receive from you and not just from me as a, a man. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a question that this passage starts with. Why? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? When it says heathen there, usually the word heathen in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is used of people who were not God's people. So to follow the Lord at that time, pretty much you would have to come into the people of God, come into the Jewish fellowship, come into the nation of Israel and join them. That's where you could offer sacrifices to the Lord. That's where then God's tabernacle was. That's where the temple was. And so heathen would be those who were not following God. And so this passage asks in the Old Testament, why do the heathen rage? And this idea of rage is like a commotion. You know, if you've ever been in a crowd and then, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a quiet audience. And then next thing you know, you hear this rumble, right? And you start to look around, where is that, where is that coming from? Right? And it may get louder, and there may get to be more of a disturbance. And everybody goes, okay, now I can't really pay attention. There's something going on elsewhere here. There's a commotion. That's kind of the idea here, but taken to another level. Why do the heathen rage? Why is there this commotion in the people that don't follow the Lord? Not only that, but he says, not, why do the heathen rage, and why do the people? Now, this is not just to be, I think, applied to the people that don't follow the Lord. I think it's to be applied to anybody, even if they're following the Lord. There may be a temptation in that for somebody even then to imagine a vain thing. Now, let's look at what imagine a vain thing there is. I asked the teens this. I said, what does it mean to imagine? And they threw out some words there. Um, and I shared with you all last week what they said really was, hey, imagine. I think that's a, lot, a type of meditation. I think it was Josiah that gave us that answer. And he was right on. I was like, man, look at you. Look at you. You're just on board. Because the word behind this word, imagine, is the same word that's in Psalm 1, where he says the man that is blessed is the man who meditates in God's word day and night. That same word, meditate, Hebrew word that is translated meditate there, is the word that here is translated imagine. So you could say here, why do the people meditate on a vain thing? Why do the people ponder, mutter, mumble, focus on, think about a vain thing? And the idea of a vain thing here is like something that is empty, something that is fruitless, something that may be even evil and wicked, but especially it's not going to bring about what they desire. Why do the people imagine or meditate upon a vain thing? Have you ever meditated on something vain? spent your time just spinning your wheels on something that in the end you're like, okay, I know that's not, that's not the right thought, but I'm thinking about it anyway. Maybe somebody got on your nerves, and you're like, okay, I just want to meditate a little bit on what I would do and what I would say. Here's what I would have said, and we just meditate on it for a little bit. It's like, oh, it just feels a little good. If only, if only, in my mind, this is what I, it's what I did say. I blessed them out in my mind. Why do the people meditate on a vain thing. I think, too, this word here, when it says why, 
the Hebrew word, is a bit of a bigger word than our word why. Um, There's a few other places in Scripture that it is used. God uses it when he speaks to Cain. What is this that you've done? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Why? This word why is used often, and I looked at this word in Scripture, and the best way that I could find to really get at what it's asking here is not just a why as in what's, why is this happening, but a what's up with that kind of a question. It's asking about the whole situation. What's up with that? What's up with why the heathen rage? What's up with that? The people imagining a vain thing. What's up with that? That's a question. And you might look at the rest of the passage and see that it may be answering that question. I'm not going to say and assume that that's the way it's designed, but you will find a portion of an answer in the passage as you continue through this psalm. So he starts with a question, and then he moves into giving the whole situation. What is up with that? So as we look at Psalm 1, I'm going to title this message, Be Instructed. Or sorry, Psalm 2, Be Instructed. And you'll see that come in in a later verse toward the end. So what is up with the heathen raging and the people imagining a vain thing? He says, the kings of the earth set themselves. And this idea of setting themselves, you could get it as like, okay, they're sitting down. But it's actually not really the picture of sitting down. It's more like the kings of the earth have said, it's time to stand up. It's time to stand our ground. The kings of the earth have set themselves. This is the hill I die on. You ever been in an argument and you think about, okay, is this worth arguing about? Is this the one argument that I want to have? Is this worth the time? But once you dig in your heels and you get set, this is the hill that I will die on. The kings of the earth have set themselves, and there is a hill that they will die on. That's the idea. They're not moving. He says, the kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So not only is there this digging in of the heels, but there's this gathering together, like calling one another, okay, let's get together. Okay, come on, come on, come on. What are we going to do here? Let's take counsel. Let's put our heads together. We got to do something about this situation. And they're taking counsel together. And they have ideas. And they're aligning their actions. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Don't miss the fact that he's speaking to authorities. Speaking of authorities. Kings and rulers. So there's a portion of this passage that speaks to all of us as people. Right? He says, why do the heathen rage? He's not singling out rulers there. And he also says, the people imagine a vain thing. He's not singling out rulers there. So there's something in probably in all of us that imagines a vain thing. But then he's now specifically saying there are kings and there are rulers, there are authorities in this earth that have dug in their heels, that are counseling together, that are aligning their forces and their influence, their authority, their power. And they specifically aligned that authority and that power 
And here's the preposition. Against. So they haven't gathered for something. They've gathered against something. Not just something. What are they against? Against the Lord. And here's also something key. Don't miss this. Against the Lord and against his anointed. What does that mean? Who's God's anointed? When I asked the team this, they said, okay, well, that could be a couple of things. Maybe that's the people of God. We're God's anointed. So if you're a Christian, then you are the Lord's anointed. So then the kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers are setting themselves against the Lord and against his people. And there is an idea that that is true. Yes. But I want to invite us to look in Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, now we're shifting to the New Testament, and this passage gets mentioned here. And the situation, this comes after Peter and John, so this is after Christ has risen, he's gone into heaven, and the disciples are now beginning the church of God. And after the church has begun, you have Peter and John one day, they, they go toward the temple, and there's this guy who's begging, and Peter says, I don't have any silver and gold. But what I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. This man receives healing. And when he receives that healing, he starts praising. People receive the gospel. And the religious leaders, the religious rulers, the religious authorities, put their heads together. We've got to do something about this. And so they do. Coming on down, they basically chastise them, tell them, you guys cannot do this. You can't be preaching in the name of Jesus. And in verse 19, it says, Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, to listen to you more than to God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. He's saying, you're trying to shut us up, and you think it's right for us to stop preaching in the Lord's name. But we can't stop it. We've got to keep going. It says, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. And then it says also that the man who that they had healed was above 40 years old. Skipping on down, verse 23, says, and being let go, they went to, they went to their own company. So Peter and John, they leave after being threatened. And they go back to the people of God. They go back to the church, basically. So they gather with their church. And when they gather with their church, it says, they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Here's how they threatened us. Which is really a shame, isn't it? Because you have religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, who say they follow Jehovah, and they're actively resisting Jehovah's work. That's what's going on here. So they get back and they tell the church this. And it says, when the church heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by thy mouth, sorry, who by the mouth of thy servant David 
has said, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. In the situation that the disciples found themselves in there, they said, this connects to Psalm 2. We've heard about this, and it's now happening to us. We see this. But not only that, look at what they said. They said, okay, Lord, you've spoken by David, the psalmist, and you said, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against who? His Christ. So when Psalm 2 says, against the Lord and against his anointed, it does specifically mean Jesus Christ. And the rulers and the authorities in the world have said, this is the hill we die on. Against the Lord and against Jesus Christ. That's quite something. Not only that, but look at to what extent they will fight. And I want to just point out, when it says, what's up with that, right? I would say what we're seeing here is something maliciously foolish. Maliciously foolish. You may have heard the saying, young man, your arms are too short to box with God. It's very foolish to think that I can get in a fight with God. And to think, well, okay, maybe I can't do it by myself. Once I get a few of my buddies together, then we'll be able to fight with God. Then we got it. It's foolish, but it is maliciously foolish. I thought about what is another way of picturing this. Actually, um, yeah, I thought about what's another way of picturing this. You know of Michael Jordan. He's one of the most well-known sports figures ever in history. And there's lots of stories about Michael Jordan not taking any trash talk. There's somebody who did not want anybody putting him down or disrespecting him. Michael Jordan was one. So there's a story about Reggie Miller when he was a rookie. And one of my favorite basketball players growing up was Reggie Miller. That guy also loved to trash talk. And then you have a guy who doesn't put up with any trash talk. So Reggie Miller, on his rookie year, he's playing in a game against Michael Jordan, and he decides to just call out Michael. He's up. He's like, I've got 12 points. Michael Jordan has only four. Psh, let me, this guy is not all that. They've been saying great things about him, but he isn't really all that. So he trash talks in the first half toward the end when he has four points, and when he has 12 points, and Michael Jordan has only four. Come the next half, the game ends, and Michael Jordan has, I believe, 44 points and Reggie Miller has 12, or, or 14. So he got two points in the second half, and Michael Jordan dominates with 40 points in the second half. He wasn't going to put up with the trash talk. And what he says to Reggie Miller is, and these are Michael Jordan's words, I wouldn't say this, but he says to Reggie Miller, don't talk about black Jesus that way. I think it's a little bit blasphemous to say you're black Jesus but the idea that he would not let his name be put down. And he defended his name. And Reggie Miller could not hold a candle to Michael Jordan in that game. How much more when humanity stands before an almighty and a sovereign God and says, let's go against him. 
How foolish. You might say, well, that's only Reggie Miller that's that stupid. Well, there was another uh, rookie, and his name was Kevin Garnett, who played for Minnesota Timberwolves. And also in his rookie year, he made the mistake of trash talking against Michael Jordan. And we'll say he had a similar demise. Um, you just don't mess with somebody who's bigger than you, in some sense. Pick on someone your own size. So the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what do they say as they're gathering? They say, let us break their bands asunder. The idea of their bonds. Okay, so God and his Christ, they have put chains on us. We're going to break them. That's what we're going to do. Now, first of, all, first of all, we've talked about how that's foolish, right? How can you resist the Lord? But the other thing is there's a, quite a misunderstanding of who God and who Christ is. There's a reason that Christ is the anointed one. In Isaiah chapter 61, this is the prophecy that's given about Christ. And I want us to listen to it and see what happens to bondage here. Let's see what God does in terms of bondage. In, I got to turn there. Isaiah 61, verse 1. This is the same passage that Jesus Christ quotes when he enters his hometown and he stands up in the synagogue and he reads the opening passage as he begins his ministry. So he's basically saying, here's what I'm here for. This is a passage that Jesus turns to, to say, here's what I'm here for. Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. By the way, that's the anointing. The spirit of the Lord God. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me. And what has he anointed me to do? To preach good tidings to the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And the idea there is like, you have wounds? I'm now going to bring healing. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God to comfort all that mourn. What does the anointed one do to those who are in bondage in this passage? He says there's people in prison. And am I here to close up the prison to make sure they don't get out? Is that what he says? No. What's he going to do to that prison? He's opening it. He says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because I've been called to open this prison. There are people in bondage, and I'm here to make them free. And yet those in Psalm 2, the heathen raging, the people imagining a vain thing, the kings of the earth setting themselves, and the rulers against the Lord say, we're going to break his bondage. They don't have the right picture of the Lord. They don't have the right picture of his Christ. That Christ came to make people free, and yet they feel that that freedom is a bondage. That's foolish. That is maliciously foolish. To take someone who, has, who is there to make you free and go, yeah, what you're really doing is you're putting chains on me. Maliciously foolish. So 
they have maligned God's name. Saying that God is here to bring bondage when exactly what the opposite is what the Lord is there to do. They have also had the audacity to resist the almighty God. And so how should God respond? Right, I gave the illustration of Michael Jordan, and that's cool, right? He, he has a response, but I don't think that quite gets the picture of what's going on. Uh, maybe a better picture is of this, um, I think he's an MMA fighter, Alistair Overing. This guy is quite a dude, quite a big guy if you saw him in real life. And there was a fight that he got into. I think that his lip just got busted and it was just hanging down. But this guy doesn't quit a fight, okay? He pushes through. Like, he's an incredible fighter and a professional. So one day he was getting interviewed by a reporter, and the reporter thought, maybe I can challenge him a little bit. So he did, right? Well, first of all, Alistair is there in his T-shirt and his shorts. He's basically in his outfit. This reporter is there in his dress shirt, his dress pants, but he's going to call him to a, to a little, just a little, little match, just for fun, right? And then he goes at him a little bit harder than he should have gone at him. How? Should Alistair respond? How seriously should he take this man? That's the question I'm drawn to. Does he not take him seriously at all? Does he respond in any way? And what's an appropriate response? That's the question that really I think God is driven to here. Men have set themselves. We're digging our heels in. We'll die on this hill. Let's gather together against God and his anointed. We're going to say that he's bringing bondage. How seriously should God take them? Do you want him to take them fully seriously? Have you ever done wrong? You ever done wrong like to a, maybe to an authority, to a, to a parent maybe? I told the kids last week, there was a time where I was getting disciplined. All right, we got disciplined with a rod, okay? And it was long, and it would whistle through the air, and then it would hit you and connect with quite a sound. But the feeling was a whole lot worse than the sound. I got tired of it once. Man, my, my mom was just going at me, right? And I, I, I'm sure I deserved it. I know I did, because I know I was, just, I was not being good at that moment in time in my life. So I got tired. So I turned around, and I caught that rod right out of her hand. Oh, man, the feeling of power, guys. I felt really good for a sweet moment. And so good. I was like, oh, yes, snap it. I snapped it. I didn't really think beyond that point. Like, I don't know. What, what, what do I do? Have you ever done that? How seriously should my mom take me? Bible says here in Psalm 2 something about how seriously God takes them. It says, he that sitteth in the heavens. Notice God's posture. He's sitting. He's not disturbed. He's not anxious. Sitteth in the heavens. He's not on earth. How can earth touch heaven? He is sitting, and he is sitting in heaven. How should God respond? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. I look at that and I go, well, what kind of laugh is that? I mean, is he, is he 
enjoying this? Is that what's going on? I don't think so. Pretty clearly when you look at the next several verses, it's pretty clear that God is not happy. It says, he shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Is he happy? No, this is not a happy laugh. This is something different. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And this laughing has to do with, this is a mockable situation. This is stupid. Just like that reporter who's like, okay, I want to take him on. Right? And we just look at that situation and go, how dumb is this guy? And also, what is Alistair going to do in this situation? How seriously is he going to take this guy? It is ludicrous. And so the response from the Lord in the the face of this malicious foolishness is majestically forethought. So we see a malicious foolishness from these rulers and these kings. But from the Lord, I think we see majestic forethought. He that sitteth in the heavens, he is seated upon a throne. That is majesty. And his response is forethought. Not only does he laugh because it's a foolish situation. He shall have them in derision. He shall speak unto them in his wrath. Don't miss that. When that reporter challenged Alistair, he went at it. He didn't put that dude right on the ground, on his back, and slammed him down. He wasn't upset, but he was definitely letting him know, yeah, you're not all that, and you definitely need to know that. And there's a sense where the Lord will do the same. But notice how he does. In his wrath and in his sore displeasure, and we don't get the meaning behind this word. This word for sore displeasure is only in Scripture ever used of one person. Only one person in Scripture has this kind of sore displeasure, and it's the Lord. So it's a wrath that is only from God. It's a God-level wrath, not a human-level wrath. And what does he do in this wrath? He speaks. Notice the restraint. Because he could do a lot more than just speak. But he speaks to them. What does he say? Look at the majestic forethought. Speaks to them in his sore displeasure, and you could put this in quotations here because this is now God speaking. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Look at that and ask yourself, what is God saying? I looked at this for a long time. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He's speaking of himself as setting up someone. Setting up someone as king. On a hill. In other words, on earth. Zion. Specific location. In Jerusalem. And he says, I've set my king there. In his sore displeasure and in his wrath, his response is to say, I have already set my king. He's not scrambling for what to do. He's like, I've already taken the action that needs to be taken. I've set my king. Majestic forethought. He doesn't have to reconsider. He doesn't have to adjust. I've set my king. 
but it doesn't stop there. Now the voice is actually going to change. So in this passage, it's really beautiful to see how much the voice has changed here. In verses 2 and 3, um, what we see actually in verse 3, I should say, we see the kings and the rulers who are gathered against the Lord and they speak. And they speak to one another about God. Then we get over to verse 6 and God speaks to them. And what he says to them, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's what he says to them. Because he says that in his wrath and in his sore displeasure, saying. And then there's a new voice. By the way, when he says I set my king, who's he talking about? Yes. The holy hill of Zion. Jesus will rule. In fact, in these words, God is saying, it's already done. That's what I've done. I've set him there. I will, so now he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me. So who's speaking these words now? Because whoever's speaking now is saying, I'm going to declare a decree. The Lord has said to me. And what did the Lord say to me? Thou art my son. Who's speaking here? In verse 7. The father says, thou art my son. But it's not the father speaking now. It's somebody else quoting that the father has said that to him. So who is the one speaking and saying these words? Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to declare something. And it's almost like as if he's unrolling a scroll. And he says, there's a decree that's been given. I'm about to share it with you. Here's the decree. I will declare the decree. The Lord said unto me, where's the decree from? It's from the Lord. Thou art my son. So he's letting everybody know, God has said, I'm his son. Not only that, this day have I begotten thee, ask of me, the father to the son, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. So the decree is, what God has said to Jesus, ask of me. I'm going to give you the heathen. Wait a second. We've seen that word heathen before, right? The heathen. Why do the heathen rage? Why is there this commotion? Ask of me, son, and I will give you the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. I will give you all the earth. Every bit of it. When he says the uttermost parts, he's talking about to the very ends of the earth. There's no part not included. All there. Jesus, ask of me. I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. No, not the end yet. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You ever broken a clay pot? Ever broken something of glass? Just, but not just broken, like, okay, it broke, and now it's like in pieces over here, but like broke as in like cast it on the wall, and it shatters, and the pieces scatter everywhere. That's the idea here. And notice the contrast. He says, you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The real focus there is on the fact that they will be scattered. This is after the rulers have set themselves. This is after they have gathered themselves. And what God says to Jesus, ask of me, here's what's about to happen. You are going to scatter them. They're not going to be together anymore. 
you will scatter them like pieces of a clay pot, broken and shattered. Those are some hard words. This is what God says in his displeasure and in his wrath. The question I asked was, how seriously should God take this offense? Very seriously. But also notice how measured, how majestically forethought his action is. I have set my king upon Zion, and I've given him a decree. And I'm letting you know, I'm putting you on notice. At my school, I'm a teacher, and there was a student that I taught two years ago. So now he's a junior. I taught him when he was a freshman. And I saw him one day do something that I was like, at our school, we don't do that. It wasn't a huge deal. But I was like, I need to talk with him about this. I've seen this behavior before. I want to talk with him. So in the moment we were, out, we were in passing in the hallway, I tried to call out to him, but he was on his way to class, and he definitely chose to ignore me and move on to class. So I said, okay, I'll circle back later. So then at lunch, he's at recess, and he's shooting basketball, right? He's just playing basketball with some friends. So I showed up, and I stood there, and he saw me, and he moved away from me. So I was like, okay, I'll move a little closer. You already know what's up, brother, and you already know the issue, but you're going to move away from me. Okay, so I walked over closer, and then I was like, I'm not about to shout across this whole gym. So I called his name when I finally got near, and he tried to ignore me. So then I moved closer, and I called his name again. He tries to walk away. So then I made it very clear, drawing pretty close to him. Hey, and I called his name. He says, I'm not about to come to you, Mr. Sims. Nah, you wasted my time before. I know what you're here for, whatever. And he just started to speak evil about me. He used some words that he should not have used. And I let him know. I said, I have not come here to cause you any problem. So I will give you one more chance to get it right. I put him on notice. It's not for you to disrespect the teacher. There is order and there is structure to how we interact. And you know that you have violated that. And I'm here so that we can get it straightened out. So I said, I'm going to give you a chance to correct yourself. He thought about it a second. And he got himself right. I think that's what God is doing here. God says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I see you setting yourselves. I see you gathering together against me. I have set my king. And that king says, I've got the decree. Here's what the Lord has said. This is all going to be gathered under my leadership. You need to know that. When I ask of the Lord, there will be a rod of iron. And there will be a scattering. Putting you on notice. I didn't come to bring chains. I came to make people free. But if you want to play these games, putting you on notice. So there was malicious foolishness from the kings and the rulers of the earth. There's majestic forethought in God's response. And don't miss both things there, that God sets in front of them, hey, I have come 
Specifically, I've set my king, Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ came first on a cross, dying to bring freedom. That is the one that God sends in this context in his wrath. And that wrath is exercised on Jesus Christ so that it doesn't come on a sinful people, so that it doesn't come on me, that wrath. That's the Jesus Christ that he has sent. That's the anointed one that he has sent. That's the king that he has set upon his holy hill of Zion. That king, here to set all bondage away. Open the prison for those of us who are captive by sin. God's grace and God's justice exercised through the same king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I've got a decree y'all need to know. And so he's let us know. So what's the next step? I would say verse 10 through 12 now, what we see is magnanimous. And it is magnanimously formative. So this word magnanimous has the idea of being gracious and exceedingly gracious to somebody who has opposed me. Magnanimous. I think that's what we see from the Lord here. Magnanimously gracious. Magnan- and so it's magnanimously, I would say, formative. Look at these words. He says, be wise now, therefore. New speaker. So in, verses, in verse 3, we heard from those who set themselves. And they spoke to one another. So we're getting, ganging up against him. And then in verse 6, we saw the Lord. And he speaks to them in his wrath, and he says, I've set my king. And then, in verses 7, 8, and 9, that king, Jesus, reads the decree and says, everybody needs to know, judgment will be coming. All right? And it's coming through me. And then, now, after Jesus finishes speaking, verse 10, I believe the psalmist now wraps up the message. After Jesus has spoken and read the decree, now he's like, okay, Time to bring the message home, guys. Be wise. Time to be wise. Let's get smart. Okay? Be wise now, therefore. Who? Who needs to be wise? Notice again, he's speaking to the authorities. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. This is now the second or third time that he's speaking of specifically the rulers and the authorities. I want to pause here on this moment and just say, I think here what we see is a picture of the fact that the general order and system of our world is not in obedience to God. Do you see it when you look around? Do you see influences of power, whether it's government, whether it's certain people in influence, as they gather and they are working actively against what God is working toward? It's because our world is fallen. And the general order is going away from the Lord. Don't be surprised, right? Should we be surprised when Jesus was on earth, Satan gathered him and he said, hey, look, one of my temptations, I want to show you all the kingdoms of the earth. It's mine to give, is what Satan said. It's been delivered to me. So the order of our earth and our general system is going against the Lord. And it's no surprise to God and it shouldn't be a surprise to us. There has been a setting and a gathering 
of resources and authority and influence and power against the way of the Lord. And so God here in this passage is speaking specifically to anybody who has authority and influence and rule on earth. And he's saying, be wise. Be wise. I don't think any of us in this room have that kind of total authority. But do you have some authority? I think parents always have authority. And there's a sense where this passage is to parents. I'm a teacher. I have some authority. And there's a sense of this passage is for me. Be wise. Do any of us have influence with anyone? Be wise with that influence. Because the general influence of our world is moving against the Lord. Be wise. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. And that idea of be wise has this idea of look around, see the way things should work, take note of that decree, maybe guide your actions in harmony with where things are going and not in conflict with where things are going. God has set Jesus upon his throne. Ultimately, this world is going to be gathered unto him. Am I guiding my life in harmony with that? Or am I guiding my life against that? Be wise. Be wise. It says, be wise, O ye kings, and be instructed, ye judges of the earth. That word instructed has to do with the idea of being corrected. So stop this, start this. Not that, this instead. Be instructed, be corrected. You were doing wrong when you set yourselves, when you gather together against the Lord. You have an opportunity to be instructed. Look at the beauty of what God is doing in this passage when people so, so blasphemously and maliciously and foolishly have gathered against him. And he says, I'm giving you a chance to be instructed. Be instructed, be corrected, ye judges of the earth. And don't miss that. He's speaking there, judges. What's a judge's job? He's got to exercise justice. When somebody does wrong, the judge goes, in the end, I've decided. So-and-so's been found guilty, and here's the punishment. So a judge knows how to deal with people that need to be corrected. That's his job all the time. Okay, you violated the law in this way, so now here's the consequence. Correction. And so God says here, you judges of the earth, be instructed. You know what it's like to correct somebody. Receive my correction. This job isn't new to you. Receive my correction. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. And that's why I call this magnanimously formative. It is so gracious for God to say, you were wrong. But you don't have to stay wrong. I've given you a way out. And that's through my son. Magnanimous, also formative. I'm a teacher, and we have what we call two kinds of assessments. We have formative assessment, and we have summative assessment. Let's enter into a little professional development, guys. Okay, so as a teacher, I may be preparing my students for a test. That test is what we call a summative assessment. Maybe it's the final. 
right? I have wrapped up the year. I have instructed you guys for this long. You now should know these things. And of course, all my students know it all. And so when they face that test, they don't hesitate at all. They go, thank you, Mr. Sims. Here we go. We got this. Well, that is if they've studied, if they've been instructed. But if they haven't, uh-oh, they don't got this. They have to receive the instruction. And that's what we call formative. So as a teacher, before I give them that final, maybe I give them a quiz. I say, there's a quiz today, right? These things are some important things that we've learned this week. Let's make sure that you know them. They will also probably show up on your final. Formative instruction before the summative instruction, or not instruction, but before the summative assessment. That's what we do as teachers. You've taken quizzes. Maybe even the teacher in the class says, raise your hand if this is true or raise your hand if, or keep your hand down if you think it's false. And they poll the class and get an understanding of, did they understand what I just taught them? And if the answer was true, they're looking around for every hand to be raised. And everybody who doesn't have their hand raised and thinks it's false, they're like, okay, I know you didn't catch that instruction, so now let me go back over it so that you don't miss it. It's a formative assessment. Maybe sometimes the teacher will go, all right, thumbs up if you got it, thumbs down if you don't got it, thumbs sideways if you're like kind of in between. What's the teacher doing there? He's giving a formative assessment. I want to know, do you have it? But if your thumb goes down, I know you don't have it yet. I know I need to give you a little more instruction before you get there. Formative. So that I can get you there. And I see in this passage, in Psalm 2, God is giving some formative assessment. You were wrong. But I'm giving you a chance to get there. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And we can kind of shy away from that word fear, like, okay, he don't really mean fear. But I think he means fear. There's a right sense of fear of the Lord. What that reporter lacked in that interaction with that fighter was a right sense of fear. And what that fighter demonstrated to him was, I can restore your fear, right? In a right way, it's going to be restored. And when that's in place, you know how to interact with the world around you. Also, um, I think, too, I played on a basketball team once, actually a couple of times. And this was a church league, so it was not anything great, guys. I didn't play very well. I was good at getting rebounds, and other than that, I was not very good. There was one time where I was running up the court and I had the ball in my hands for like once ever in the whole league. And I was running across the half, you know, I was, I, was, I was taking it across the court to our side. And I tripped and I fell and just rolled over. I said, well, there's a reason that they usually don't put the ball in my hands. So I wasn't very good. But there was a guy on our team who was clearly the captain. And he was clearly very able, right? And he led our team. And I feared him. He would speak very, very frankly to me and say, Kelvin, don't do this. And when he said it, I was like, I'm not going to do that. And if I ever forgot in the moment and did what he said don't do, like he said, don't ever stand at the top of the key. That's not your spot. And if I ever forgot and I was at the top of the key, he let me know. 
and rightfully in fear, I was like, I'm never going to stand there again. I'm on his team. And I know if I continue to go against what he has said, I'm going to be off the team. There's a right sense of fear. Now, that's just a team in a church league. But it also is true for the workplace, right? If I have a boss, my boss does one thing, and I say, I'm going to go against him, how long should I expect to be uh, working for him? Probably not long, right? He's going to move me off the team. Well, God has an organization, and we call it reality. And if I move against him, he's going to move me out of his organization, out of reality. High stakes. But join him. He says here, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I'm not afraid of my boss all the time, but there is a fear. I want to be a part. I want to be a part of what the Lord is doing too. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. This idea of kiss has the idea of we're now meeting together. We're touching, right? We kiss, you get the idea. I'm not going to get all, everybody knows what a kiss is, okay? But this idea of, of now meeting in agreement. And that's the opposite of what we saw at the beginning where they dug in their heels and they gathered together and the preposition was against. What he's saying here is be instructed, change your preposition. Stop being against. Start being with. Be with the Lord. Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And that idea there, I think, of wrath being kindled a little is that this is a God-sized power. And it's not that, like, he's going to fly off the handle. But he has God-sized power. And a little bit of wrath from a God-sized power is a lot. You can't handle it. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And I want to wrap up as we talk about this being magnanimously formative, it's magnanimously formative as we've just been talking about to those that were against the Lord. But let's also not miss that. It's a magnanimously formative for those of us who stand with the Lord. Have you ever seen somebody who's resisting the Lord, blaspheming him? And you ever get that feeling of like, why would you use my Lord's name in that way? You ever get the feeling of like, why would you stand against the Lord in that way? Get upset. Have you ever been upset? God was upset. But in God's wrath, what did he do to those that were resisting him? It says he spoke. When you feel that wrath, what do you do? Do I get out of control? Do I get disturbed? Or can I exercise the same majestic forethought that God does? And can I speak the truth? The same majestic forethought that Jesus does and says, hey, there's a decree. This is all taken care of. Or am I disturbed and anxious and do I have my own commotion inside and there's no peace? I can have peace. Be formed by God's response here. I can respond in the same way that the Lord does. His king is on his holy hill of Zion. That's all I need to say. Jesus is on his throne no matter what any king or ruler or anybody who's against the Lord says. I don't need to get bent out of shape. 
have every reason to be in shape. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Do you feel blessed even in that moment where somebody is actively withstanding against the Lord? I'm going to wrap up with just one story. Um, Abby's a great person with kids. And so she works uh, with students, although she's in retirement this year, taking a year off from teaching. But she has taught many students. And some of those students come into her class really off in their behaviors, really resistant, not knowing how to follow authority in a classroom. And because they can't follow authority, they can't be instructed. And when they can't be instructed, they have ignorance. And Abby's heart is for them to learn and to grow and to become the individuals that they need to be. Well, there was a student that she had taught how to follow in the way that things should be, how to obey so that then he could flourish in her classroom. And he learned to flourish. So she's walking with that student. And there's another teacher who has a student who hasn't learned yet. And she's like, I've got to go. Hopefully I get the story right, Abigail. I've got to go. Abby, would you take care of this kid who's on the ground and actively not obeying? He can't be taught. And she says, okay, I got it. You can go on. She tells the kid to stand up. He doesn't stand up. Come on, brother. You know what to do. Is she disturbed? She's not disturbed. Is she putting this kid in bondage? She's not putting him in bondage. But she is learning to free him. Right? And he has to take that and interact with that well. He continues to disobey. Well, the student that's with Abby, who has learned how to obey, who has learned to be free, who has been instructed, turns to that kid on the ground and says, you better get up, brother. She don't play. I think that is our job. As people who used to be against the Lord, have you received salvation? Understand that I used to be an enemy of the Lord, and he has called me into salvation, into his kingdom. And I don't deserve that spot, but he's given me that place. And I have learned to be instructed. And yet we have people in our world today who have not learned that yet. And can I just say, hey, God doesn't play. Kiss the sun. Be wise. Be instructed. I was going to close with a song, but I think I've gone past my time. So we'll go ahead and close, and I will pray. The song that we were going to sing was, This is My Father's Will. I think there is peace in that song. And maybe as you go home, you may turn to that song and sing it and be reminded of what God is saying and the peace that we can experience inside of ourselves when we are in harmony with my Father and my Father's world.